Oh God, we cry out to you this morning and come from all kinds of places, emotionally and physically and geographically. We need you, God. We pray that as you have written this word for us and for our instruction and for the revelation of your son and the truth, that you would so make the truth known to us this morning that the powers of darkness would be beaten back as the word is proclaimed in our own souls and in our city and in our world. We pray that Jesus would be lifted up and that you would draw all of us to him for life. We pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen. You can be seated. The first extended interaction that Jesus has in the Gospel of John takes place at night in Jerusalem with Nicodemus, a man who was at the top of the social ladder. He was a Pharisee and a member of the Jewish ruling council. The second extended interaction takes place at noontime in Samaria, no longer among the Jews, with a Samaritan woman whose moral status is questionable. We expect the first interaction in some sense. Nicodemus was a man of stature and importance and an up-and-coming rabbi who had created a bit of a stir would be expected to engage with a teacher of Israel. Though, of course, not in the way that Jesus did. But this second interaction takes us all by surprise, especially Jesus' disciples, as we note in verse 27 of John chapter 4. Remember what we learned from John 3.16, the most quoted verse from the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God so loves the world. And the world is a comprehensive term. We cannot put limits on this term. And with the first two encounters of Jesus in the Gospel of John, we see one with someone at the top of the Jewish world and the other at the bottom of the Jewish world. Outside Judaism, among the ethnically and religiously compromised Samaritans, And this one, this Samaritan, even herself an outcast among her own culture, thus coming to the well at noon to avoid the company of others because of her shame. In this encounter, we see that worldwide love of God, that reach of God's love that crosses the world on display. To Nicodemus, Jesus teaches the new birth in the spirit. And to the Samaritan woman, he offers living water. Both of them are a gift of life unending life, saving life, forgiving life, enduring life, overflowing life, and yes, eternal life. Life that swallows up fears in the midst of a pandemic. Life that overcomes anxiety in the midst of political tension. Life that deals with our sins and our shortcomings, not by asking us to work harder and be better to overcome them, but by announcing a word of forgiveness that we all desperately need to hear. Life that swallows all past, present, and future failures and assures us that in the end, all will be well. Life, of course, that conquers the grave. This is why Jesus came and this is why John writes his gospel, that we might know him and have this kind of life. From the outset, as we look at John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26, I want us to admire the beauty of this encounter with the Samaritan woman by making two opening observations. First... Jesus crosses substantial barriers to offer life to this woman. Which means that the love of God is a barrier-breaking love. There are barriers of gender in those days. 
men would not talk to women in public. Of ethnicity, as we're told in verse 9, Samaritans and Jews did not associate with one another. Most Jews, to get from Judea to Galilee, would walk around Samaria because they didn't want to be unclean. Certainly, they would never drink from the same vessel as a Samaritan. There were barriers of religion. The Samaritans only acknowledged the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. And ever since the king of Assyria overran Samaria and settled their land with foreigners, he infused into that land foreign worship. Samaritan religion was syncretistic. It was a promiscuous affair. And there were barriers of morality. This woman is now living with her sixth man, in this case, one who is not even her husband. Why should this rabbi have anything to do with her? These were all barriers that were obvious and clear to everyone else, but seemingly Jesus, because Jesus embodies the love of God that breaks all barriers to bring life to those in need. And he clearly teaches us that this is the mission of God, the love of God, to cross these barriers. Not only does Jesus cross barriers, but he offers this life to someone who by all standards of the day was very clearly undeserving and unworthy. Now, of course, one of the truths of the gospel that Jesus brings is that we're all unworthy and undeserving. But that was harder to see in some cases. And in this case, it was very plain to see. Everyone would have agreed. And yet Jesus, instead of lecturing this woman on her life and her shortcomings, instead of pointing his finger at her, he engages her gently. Starts by asking her a question, will you give me a drink, which is coming to her level and even taking a lower place than her level, ask, putting himself in the place of need. He, he doesn't lord it over her. The love of God reaches the unworthy. The love of God only reaches the unworthy. If we think ourselves worthy, we will miss the gift. Those who are well, Jesus says, have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Which means that no one is off limits. No one is off limits to this love of God. That includes you and me, however unworthy, however out of sorts, however ashamed or discouraged that we may feel today. It includes every single person that we encounter in this city. Whatever it is that our culture says about them, whatever amount of social capital they've built up or they don't have, all are worthy of our engagement, of our attention, of our question asking. How powerful that Jesus engages this Samaritan woman to bring her to life and to offer her life. It's an encounter, John chapter 4, that just brilliantly displays the love of God. God in the person of his son crosses barriers, especially the barrier between heaven and earth, and comes to offer the gift of life to the unworthy. This is our good news. This is what we get to proclaim as followers of Jesus in the midst of a world, in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of a political season of unrest, in the midst of cultural tension and uncertainty. This is our God, and this is his mission. One thing we should take away from John chapter 4 is just wonder at the beauty and amazement, amazing nature of the love of God. So as we dive into the story a little bit deeper, what I want us to see is first the universal need that this story is built around. Secondly, the gift that Jesus offers, both in terms of its content and its results. And then thirdly and briefly and finally, a little bit about how do we receive that gift. So first, the universal need. We're at a well. We're at Jacob's well in Sychar in Samaria. It's noon. 
And Jesus is wearied from his journey up to that point in the day. He's tired. His disciples have gone into town to buy food. And so he sits down at the well. And then the Samaritan woman in verse 7 comes to draw water. And he asks her that question. Will you give me a drink? And that sets out the theme of this exchange. Thirst. Thirst. He asks the woman for a drink to quench his thirst. But the conversation quickly deepens as Jesus talks about living water. The woman is interested in these opening lines of their, their dialogue. And in verse 15, she says, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. It's an honest, slightly misguided or not fully understanding, but it's an honest question. Jesus, to help her along, he isn't talking about physical thirst. And he's using this most basic need that we have to point to a deeper thirst that is part of the human condition, that is part of this woman's life, and that is part of your life, and that is part of my life as well. We are all looking for something to bring us rest, something to stop the striving, something to satisfy deeply. That is the universal need. We are parched, and we are thirsty. So in verse 16, Jesus abruptly shifts the conversation after she asks him for this living water. And he says to her, go call your husband and come back. When he says that, it's this deeper thirst that he's beginning to expose in her life. His aim is not humiliation. He's responding to her request to quench physical thirst by pointing her deeper into her own heart and life and experience she responds a bit startled i have no husband and then jesus says in verses 17 and 18 you're right when you say you have no husband the fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband what you have said is quite true we need to be clear that we don't know what what the circumstances of this woman have been particularly around these previous five husbands it's honestly quite possible, certainly in that day and age, in that culture, when a man could divorce his wife for a trivial reason without any uh, harm done to him, that perhaps she's just been cast off time and time again by these husbands. There is some indication, however, of the fact that she has some moral fault and that this man that she's with now is not her husband. We really don't know. We know that Jesus knows, but Jesus doesn't dwell on this aspect of her history. He simply points it out, not to dwell on it, but to show her that in some real way, she is thirsty. She's seeking to satisfy this deep thirst in her life with these men, but it's not working, perhaps because of, of their fault, perhaps because of hers, but the thirst returns. The thirst always returns. This is true not just of the broken relationships that this woman had experienced, but it's true of the best that life can offer. The greatest successes, the most exciting adventures, the satisfaction of intellectual curiosities, all of these can and do bring some level of, of, of satisfaction, but, it, but it's never ultimate. It's never quite what we had hoped for. It's always temporary, fleeting, elusive. And at the end of the day, we remain parched and thirsty, looking and longing. I do wonder if the stress of this, of this year, it's, a peculiar year for all of us is exposed for any of us as I suspect it may have that we're trying to quench our underlying thirst with the things of this world by turning to something other than God himself I do wonder if you were standing at the well with Jesus that day or if I were what Jesus would say to us 
Would he point to your iPhone, your spouse, your Netflix playlist, your children, your use of social media, the food in your pantry, or your exercise habits, or the drinks in your refrigerator. Maybe he'd point to your professional career, or your desperate attempts to get an advanced degree. Maybe he would point out the 24-hour news cycle that has been a source of solace and perhaps even addiction during this crazy time. Be good to think about what might Jesus say to you? What might he point out to you and say, this is where you're trying to quench your thirst, but it's not working. You'll be left wanting. This is what he wants this woman to see. This is where he brings her, to see this universal need. Many of you have heard this uh, account before, but in 2005, Tom Brady in 60 Minutes had this interview, and he said this, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and think there's still something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, he says, I thank God there has to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. And then Steve Croft says, well, what's the answer? And Brady replies with a sense of desperation, I wish I knew, I wish I knew. The reality is that Jesus does know. And so we go from the universal need now to the offer. What is it that he offers? The key part of this exchange is in verse 10 with the woman. In response to her shock that he, a Jew, would be speaking to her, a Samaritan, Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If you knew. She doesn't know, at least not yet. She'll come to know by the end of their encounter. But if you knew what? If you knew the gift of God, and just pause here for a moment and say, this word for gift implies something that's given freely. It's not something that can be earned. It's not something that we deserve. It's not given only to the worthy or the socially uh, acceptable. This is a word that means something freely given. And it is at the heart of the Christian gospel that we proclaim. God offers to us a gift that none of us can merit. And he offers it here to a woman that all around her would have said she definitely doesn't merit. That's the whole point, I think, of this story being here and told by the gospel writer John that here's an outcast of outcasts who is the recipient of God's offer of a gift. What tremendous grace we see in the God that we worship in this story. So what is the gift? Jesus says it's living water. And most likely he's referring to the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 7, at the last day of the Feast of Booths, Jesus says this, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then the gospel writer goes on to say, now this he said about the spirit. So in chapter 7, the living water is the spirit. And that seems to make good sense in these verses here as well. What we've been told about Jesus up to this point, particularly in chapter 1, is John the Baptist says he is the one, Jesus is, on whom the spirit has descended and remained. And this one will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Jesus came to bring us the, the spirit of God, the very person, presence, and power of God to dwell upon us in, in fulfillment of the promises that the prophets had proclaimed. 
And after his glorification on the cross and his resurrection, Jesus meets his disciples and breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. This is the ministry that he came. And so that makes sense of this gift of living water, that it would be the Holy Spirit. And yet there's more because there's also a sense in which the gift that Jesus gives is himself. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink. That and seems to be explaining the gift of God in this text. Which would imply that Jesus is the gift. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Jesus is the gift of God indeed. Yet the son has come, who is the gift of God, has come to baptize with the spirit who is the living water. So it's right to see both in this expression we have the gift of god's spirit through the gift of god's son and we would be wrong to drive a wedge ever between the son and the spirit that's the content it is the gift of god himself which of course is the great promise of the scriptures what does this gift bring what does it result in and we we see three things in this story the first is that it brings an end to our thirst in verse 14 we get two of these results of the gift Jesus says that if you drink of this you will never thirst or literally you will not be thirsty forever that doesn't mean that we don't have continued longing Psalm 63 oh God you are my God earnestly I seek you my soul thirsts for you my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water We do even as we come to know Jesus, we do continue to long for him more and more. Calvin comments on this text, Jesus does not mean that we drink so that we are fully satisfied from the very first day, but only that the Holy Spirit is a constantly flowing well. So there is no danger of those who are renewed by spiritual grace becoming dry. We've come to the right source. There is a Uh, comparison between Jacob's well and what Jesus has come to bring and this story teaches us that we've come to the one source that can quench our thirst the one person Jesus who is indeed as the woman asked greater than Jacob their father the 20th century British journalist Malcolm Muggeridge who came to know Jesus and writes about this in his book Jesus Rediscovered says this in comparing the sources that we drink from I may, I suppose, regard myself or pass for being a relatively successful man. People stare occasionally at me in the streets. That's fame. I can fairly easily earn enough to qualify for admission to the higher slopes of the internal revenue. That's success. Furnished with money and a little fame, even the elderly, if they care to, may partake of trendy diversions. That's pleasure. It might happen once in a while that something I said or wrote was sufficiently heated for me to persuade myself that it represented a serious impact on our time. That's fulfillment. Yet I say to you, and I beg you to believe me, multiply these tiny triumphs by a million and add them all together and they are nothing, less than nothing, a positive impediment measured against the one draft of that living water that Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty irrespective of who they are. And his testimony is repeated over and over and over again. Jesus and the living water of the Spirit quenches our thirst. That's one result. The next one is not only does it quench our thirst, but in verse 14, Jesus says that this this living water leads us to literally overflow with life. 
This water becomes in us, as he says, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Or as Eugene Peterson puts it in the message, an artesian spring within, gushing fountains of endless life. We are, we are not only satisfied, but we are transformed from seekers and takers to overflowers and givers, agents of this life to others. Think about what Jesus is offering this woman. She's empty, she's spent, she's ashamed, she's hidden, she's suffered much in her life. Maybe for her own fault, maybe not. She's at the bottom of the ladder. And yet Jesus says to her, if you drink of this living water, it will become in you a spring welling up with water that overflows out of you. You will become an agent in the purposes of life and life expanding. We were created for this, this kind of purpose. Several years ago, I was having a conversation with a woman who had traveled the world extensively and who had oriented her life around meeting the needs of others. And she was genuinely seeking. And we talked about Jesus and Christianity and other religions. And toward the end of the conversation, I asked her, so what is it that you desire most? And her answer was refreshingly honest. She said this, she said, I want to have a purpose. I want to know my place in this world, why I'm here. I want to have peace. She instinctively got it that to have this kind of rest and satisfaction and peace meant that she needed to have a sense of meaning. Why was she here and purpose? What was she here for? And this offer of living water doesn't just quench our thirst, but it enlists us in the work of life in the world and gives us a purpose that we deeply long for in our lives. And Jesus is offering that here. What could be more meaningful? than to have this spring of water flowing up out of us into the world. That is the calling of those who follow Jesus. What a privilege. Not only quenches her thirst, not only gives a purpose and causes her to overflow with life, but Jesus says that the results of this gift are also to restore us to the Father in true worship. And that's verses 19 through 24. Because after she asks for water and Jesus exposes her deeper thirst, she then dodges the exposure a bit with her question in verse 20 about worship. And Jesus, we learn from him and how to encounter people. He doesn't dismiss her. He doesn't say, well, that's not what we're talking about here. I want to get back to the subject. You know, he, he engages her question. He takes it seriously. Even if the people that we encounter are asking dodging questions, we are to take those questions seriously and to engage them as Jesus does here. She sees that he knows something about her. She says, you're a, I see that you're a prophet. And then she asks the one question that any Samaritan would have asked somebody who seemed to have some kind of religious knowledge or insight. It was the pressing, pressing question for the Samaritans in their conflict with the Jews. They had built a temple at Mount Gerizim and worshiped there until the Jews destroyed that temple in 128 BC. While the Jews maintained that the locus of true worship took place in Jerusalem. And she's saying, who is right? To which Jesus responds, the time is changing. The hour is coming. And we should use hour here and not time because it's a significant term in John's gospel. The hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And then he lands a punch on her here that's important to notice. Your Samaritan worship, he says, is an ignorance. We Jews worship what we know. And then he says, for salvation is from the Jews. That is, the salvation of God takes place within the grammar and structure and hope and expectations of the Jewish narrative that Jesus has come to fulfill. The salvation that he's come to bring is coming about through the Jewish story and that story being culminating in his life and ministry as the savior of the world. This story makes its climax in Jesus. 
And the fruit of what Jesus brings is to make worshipers who are true worshipers that the Father seeks. Not just from the Jewish people, but from the Samaritans that the Jews didn't like. And from everyone across the world. So verse 23, yet an hour is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. To worship in spirit and truth is to worship in the Holy Spirit. I think we're right to read spirit here as capital S spirit. And in the truth who is the Son, that is Jesus himself, who later refers to himself as I am the way and the truth and the life. Spirit as Holy Spirit, truth as Jesus himself. In other words, the salvation that Jesus has come to bring brings us into the truth of the Spirit, into the truth by the Spirit, the truth of himself, of Jesus, who is now the new temple in which true worship takes place. The new temple in Ezekiel 47, in that prophet's vision of God's future, there is a temple, a new temple that's constructed, and out of that temple flows a river of water that becomes so deep that you have to swim in it, and that water brings life and healing to the world. Now Jesus, the new temple, as we saw in chapter 2, offers to us living water, the living water, which is the spirit that flows out to bring life and healing into the world. And Jesus is saying, the new, this new work, this new salvation, this new life that comes through the spirit brings about true worship in the new temple. Worship in spirit and truth. This is what the outpouring of the spirit brings. A whole new kind of worship that renders the question of whether we worship on this mountain or that mountain no longer relevant. A new day is dawned and the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Holy Spirit and in the truth who is Jesus. The contrast here is not between internal and external. Yes, worship comes from the heart, from the depths of our being where the Spirit resides and that we drink dwells deep within us. But we shouldn't conclude that this true worship about which Jesus speaks is anti-ritual or only a matter of internals. We are embodied people and Jesus himself institutes two sacraments that use matter and involve our bodies as meaningful expressions, powerful expressions of our worship in spirit and truth. This is what the Father seeks. It's this new way in Jesus that has opened up. So this gift not only quenches our thirst, it not only brings life overflowing within us and gives us a new purpose, but it also restores us to the Father in true worship. We become those whom the Father is seeking. And Jesus says this is happening in this moment, in the hour that is coming and is now here. As Leslie Newbegin writes, the hour of this new revelation is impending and it is now present. Impending because Jesus is not yet glorified. Present because it is Jesus himself who is speaking. So that's the gift and what it brings. Then briefly as we close, how do we receive the gift as we think about it from this story? What is the key? And there are two basic insights that the story gives us. The first one is to see Jesus clearly. This story is all about the identity of Jesus. Jesus asks the woman in verse 10, if you knew who it was that asks you for a drink, pointing to himself, she then says, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well? Raising the question of his identity. After he exposes her deeper thirst, she says, I see that you are a prophet. Again, coming back to Jesus. And then after this exchange about true worship, she says, well, the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he'll, he will tell us all things. He'll explain everything to us. And that brings us to the culmination of this story. 
in verse 26 where Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. He's made it known who he is. I am the Messiah. I am the one who has come to bring the spirit. Come to bring the living water. And that will come when my hour arrives in full. You're getting a foretaste of that here, woman, here at the well. But it will come in full when I've been glorified. When I have truly fulfilled my vocation as the Lamb of God. Who takes away the sin of the world. And when I have fulfilled my my victory over death and raised, been raised from the dead, then I will pour out all of this living water in fullness, what you are getting a taste of here and now. When we see Jesus as this Messiah, the crucified and raised Messiah, we have an, an invite in a way into the true living water. So it's seeing Jesus, but it's also and this is lastly, this idea of asking. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him. The gift of this living water, which comes as we see Jesus as the true Messiah, is a gift that we receive as we ask. Ask and it will be given to you. Knock and it will be opened to you. Seek and you will find, Jesus says. It is a simple asking. Not because we've got it all figured out. Not because we're worthy of it. Not because we're holy. Not because we've unlocked some deeper spiritual truths. We should be very wary of any notion that attaches the gift of the Spirit and the life of the Spirit to some kind of more intense, higher level of Christian spirituality. Here Jesus offers this life to a woman and just says, ask. Ask. That's what he wants. He wants us to ask. To ask him, the Messiah, for this living water. And as he teaches us in the Gospel of Luke, your father longs to give the Holy Spirit to those who what? Who ask him. Who ask him. See Jesus and ask him. This is how we receive the gift of God. This is how we receive the Spirit. This is how our thirst is quenched. How life begins to overflow, not only in us, but then out of us into the world. How worship, true worship, is entered into and we are restored to the Father. These are the things for which we were made. These are the things for which we long. Thanks be to God that he's come to bring them to us in his son. He is not making it difficult to see him and to ask. Yes, it entails pouring out our lives, handing over control, but Jesus comes into the world that we might see him. And he comes into the world to provoke us to ask him. Let's pray. How we thank you, O oh God, for the living water that you have come and brought in the Spirit and through your Son. Please pour out your Spirit more and more upon us. That your life might flow in us and through us into our city and into our world. God, I pray that your grace, your character, the nature of your love that we see so clearly in this text would reassure us, encourage us, and warm us this day. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.